This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The consequence when we're dealing with a number of global shocks is that I think we're leaving on the table our collective power to reduce the impact and prepare for the future shocks. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power Speaker Series is supported by City. On March 22nd, Smart Women Smart Power hosted Gail Smith, the CEO of the One Campaign, for a powerful conversation on her career working on global health security and her outlook for the future. Enjoy. Welcome, Gail. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. No, I'm happy to be here. So to get us started, I'd love to learn people's origin stories. What got you into this field of international development? A really crummy boyfriend. <laughs> I have oh, a true story. Yeah, okay. true story. Yeah, fair. Because, you know, you want to say from the time I was in the third grade, I wanted to grow up and yeah. do what I'm doing now. And, and that's not the case. I'd studied mathematics I can't even understand some of the papers I wrote in college at this point, but um, I was traveling after I graduated Mm -hmm. and broke up with my boyfriend and kept going. And it was one of those things that I got a good education. Mm -hmm. I'd been to college. I listened to the news or read the news. And suddenly there was this whole world out there. I was in Egypt and then I was in Sudan that exposed me to things that, quite frankly, I hadn't learned enough about in Mm. either school or from the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got a job doing research that led to my becoming a stringer, a reporter for the BBC Mm -hmm. on uh, African affairs in East Africa and the Horn. And things just took off from there. So it was a lot of, you know, as I say, I did the college degree, Mm -hmm. but my real education was in the field. Wow. In, in Egypt and then Horn of Africa. Egypt and then Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, the whole. And that, and that was a critical time yeah. then as well. I mean, the, the, the famine, the different crises. That's, there's exactly. A lot to... it, was a, it was a period of, and unfortunately it's being repeated a bit now, but it was a period of war everywhere. Mm-hmm. And in the mid-1980s, the biggest famine in recorded history. And mm-hmm. that was the event that changed my life the most. Uh, it was a famine that unfolded in the midst of a war, and largely because of a war. It was yeah. a combination of war and drought. And close to a million people died that the world could have reached, but politics prevented them from reaching them. <clears throat> and that was yeah. like the game changer. Yeah, Nobody should live in that degree of poverty. Mm-hmm. And nobody should be in a position where politics is between them and survival. The politics. It, that's it. It's international it, it, politics. Right, right. It's it's um, it, how famine is, is in some ways distinct from other kinds of crises too, because it's it's often governance that, that yeah, famine is more man made than not. I mean, yeah. drought is well, you could argue with climate change, but mm-hmm. yeah, famines are mostly man made. Yeah, and they are preventable. I mean, right now there is a famine looming in Somalia. Mm-hmm. 
it is preventable, but we inch closer to it every day, every week, every month. And the world hasn't quite yet stepped up to stop us from getting to that point. Yeah. So (laughs) turning to another kind of (laughs) uh, crisis or catastrophe. (laughs) I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, We're going to see SIS. We think about the world's catastrophes a lot. Um, But but during your times in both the Clinton and the Obama White Houses, you were arguably instrumental in sounding the alarm bells with the interagency on um, the emergence of uh, global pandemics in Clinton years, HIV, AIDS, um, Ebola during Obama. Um, So given typical bureaucratic resistance to emerging issues, how did you go about galvanizing a response from the U.S. and, and getting getting the, the mechanisms of state to pay attention to these, these issues? Well, you know, there wasn't, in fact, a great deal of bureaucratic resistance. Oh. Um, at the end of the Clinton administration, it mm-hmm. was becoming exceedingly clear mm-hmm. that the AIDS epidemic was going to just devastate developing countries. Mm-hmm. And so we were sort of on the cusp towards the end of the administration of putting some things in place. And then, of course, George Bush, thankfully, launched PEPFAR right. as a really, really, really big move. And I think, <clears throat> you know, President Clinton was a president who appreciated science. Mm-hmm. And the science was there and the facts were there. He appreciated data. And the data was stunning because at that time, what was happening with HIV and AIDS is that it was affecting people more in urban centers. Mm. Remember, this was a while ago. Yeah. Uh, a lot of able-bodied producers and workers. So it was, it was carving out uh, the most productive elements of society who then were also unable to provide care for those younger and older than them. Right. So you could just see the impact on governments, on business. So they, people were, it was breathtaking. Yeah. And the projections were even more frightening. So I think those things caught the attention mm-hmm. of the senior leadership, including the president, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly caught the attention of President Bush. It was one of the things we briefed that team on when they came in. And thankfully, mm-hmm. they just ran Bush did it. what he did. Yeah. Well, and then uh, with the Ebola outbreak, I mean, yeah. I just remember watching that and then the military got involved with the response. Yeah. And there was, uh, at least on the, the DOD side, concern that, you know, that was detracting from core missions of fighting and winning the nation's wars. And how did you interact with or work with the... Yeah. Well, the way that happened was yeah. that the initial response for a period of time to the Ebola epidemic uh, was from the Centers for Disease Control mm-hmm. and the U.S. Agency for International Development, each doing their bit, and they fit mm-hmm. together very well in crises like these. And what was happening uh, is that between CDC and aid, which increased six or eight-fold in terms of their presence, mm-hmm. and the extraordinary NGOs that were on the ground, there were a number of NGOs who were really the earliest responders, mm-hmm. it was clear that the underlying infrastructure to manage the spread of the Ebola virus was insufficient, mm-hmm. that there weren't enough Ebola treatment units, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to get samples from rural areas to urban areas to test the ability to get labs out into the field mm-hmm. to really, it's a fast moving virus. Yeah. And so the conclusion, I was coordinating an interagency process at the time. I remember one very fateful call where I polled every agency on the line and said, do you think we can go faster than the virus 
the way we're operating now? Or do you think we have to go back and suggest mm -hmm. that we may need military support to help build that infrastructure? Interesting. And every single agency said, we're not going to be able to move faster. Wow. So the reason to go to the military was for that underlying infrastructure and support. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of resistance, to be frank. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I think people are <clears throat> not that aware of is that in a crisis response, whether it's Ebola or an earthquake or anything else, the military often comes in behind the U.S. Agency for International Development to provide lift and other support. So mm -hmm. it was different because it was a virus, mm -hmm. and that was daunting. Yeah. And this yeah. was a scary, very, very, scary very virus, contagious virus. Yeah. Uh, but that's the reason that the military was deployed. And, and was prepared for because of all the humanitarian assistance right. and the logistical support. Right. I mean, it was a yeah. different kind of operation, but they were used to deploying in emergencies and crises. Um, you were confirmed as USAID administrator at about the time, you know, that one of my, my colleagues at the Congressional Research Service, Ron O'Rourke, calls it this, this shift in strategic areas. You know, like we had, you know, Russia had illegally annexed uh, Crimea, the Syrian refugee crisis, um, China, China was building islands in the South China Sea. The, the lines between war and peace were getting blurrier um, and, and hard and soft power also blurrier. How... So in, in the middle of all this, you're sitting at USAID. Hmm. How did you view the U.S.'s preparedness and capability to respond to multiple simultaneous crises yeah. in, this, in, this, in this shifting world? I, in many, many ways, I responded to that, and I thought about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, one was I had the good fortune, and you see this in some administrations, of having a president who understood our role in the world as offensive and defensive, mm. as hard power and soft power, and had been very supportive from day one, in, in fact, from the time of the election, of the kind of work that USAID does. Mm -hmm. So that was a really, a really strong foundation. And that continued throughout the administration. I mean, that experience of responding to the Ebola epidemic mm -hmm. Um, President Obama put a huge amount of his own political capital into that. I mean, he right. called every leader on the planet to say, how many healthcare workers? What are you going to have in place? Give me labs. Move. Wow. So there was that yeah. to build on. Mm -hmm. So I think the environment, if you will, within the government was pretty positive. Yeah. The recognition that all these things were important. And there wasn't as much tension, I think, uh, around the relative merits of hard and soft power as sure. there may have been at previous times or, or even now and into the future. I think the challenge for USAID and for NGOs, for governments and communities themselves, is that the crises are so many mm -hmm. and of such long duration that they are carving out the time, resources, and investments that could and should be going into development and prevention. Mm -hmm. Right. So the mm -hmm. balance is shifting. Right. The amount of the budget mm -hmm. in USAID still now is increasing mm -hmm. of what's needed for these humanitarian crises. And that means there's less to invest in preventing them. Right. And that's the hardest. I think that's the biggest problem we've got. So while you were sitting during your tenure as USAID administrator, did did your thinking on the kinds of activities that the USAID is doing and needs to do shift? Or was, was it... 
It shifted before I got to you. Okay. Side. I mean, I think one of the things that I went into the administration wanting to do, and mm -hmm. for which I had the support of the incoming president, was strengthen our development capacity, mm -hmm. kind of elevate development. Uh, you know, these three-legged stools, and I hate all these analogies, but there you go. Yeah. We did a, a policy directive, presidential policy directive, that had never been done. There had never been a presidential directive on a development policy. Huh. That was kind of interesting. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time in the first term turning mm. that around. It was at that time that... <clears throat> AIDS started participating in principals' meetings and deputies' meetings and mm -hmm. high-level meetings. That's yep. a big deal when you've got that voice at the table. It's huge. So those things started shifting mm -hmm. uh, early in the administration. So by the time I got to USAID, I think there was an understanding, and I think this was shared by most of the Congress at the time, mm -hmm. that we needed a really strong, capable USAID for both things, mm -hmm. humanitarian crises, but also development. Similarly, yeah. MCC is, I think, extremely important in this. So I, what I left with was, I think, two concerns. Hmm. Uh, one is that, again, with the balance shifting and yeah. greater demand to respond to crises, we are at risk of spending much, much more on responding to a problem than we are investing in preventing it, is, is number mm -hmm. one. And number two is the budget just isn't where it needs to be. And I know mm -hmm. it's... Hard, but these are investments that make a real difference for the United States. Mm -hmm. um, if that ever becomes a political football, that's going to be a problem. Well, and you've had senior defense leaders making that case, too, before Congress. They're but some of the best arguments inside government and outside government for a robust civilian budget have come from the military. Yeah. 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 It's... And I was very grateful for that because, you know, they've got some influence, those guys. They, they, yeah, a little. Yeah. <laughs> you know, speak up at me and say, no, we want USAID in the room. It's like, yeah, got it. <laughs> well, so turning to the COVID-19 pandemic. So yes. In April 2021, the Biden administration asks you to take, a, take leave from the one campaign and join the effort um, to become the, the coordinator for the global COVID-19 response and a health security team. Um, my, my, my first question, like, wow, that's a huge role. <laughs> like, how did your working on the other pandemics inform your approach going in? I think it reinforced the notion that while this was a new virus, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I think what we've learned from HIV and Ebola is that we know a lot, uh, that scientists and medical and health professionals are our friends, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that the response is in many ways quantitative, right? Mm -hmm. If you think okay. about different kinds of threats, mm -hmm. you think about something like terrorism, yeah. That may be quantitative, but it's also very qualitative in terms of how you've got to think about ideology and a number of other things. Yeah. I think with a virus, you can plot a path. And again, it was a new virus, and so the path changed as more and more data and evidence came in. So I, I went into it, or I, I actually, the pandemic had been going on for a while by then, but yeah. I observed the pandemic thinking, this is a terrible thing, but boy, do we have the tools to fight it. 
Yeah. We've just, we've got all sorts of tools to fight it. Um, so that's what I took in is that we've got all the tools. It turned out, it was very, very different than I think the responses to HIV and AIDS mm. and Ebola by a long shot. Okay. Why? Because it got politicized from the very beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, a virus is a virus. A yeah. virus doesn't really care what state you're from or anything else. And I think that got in the way of <clears throat> the facts and the fact-based decisions that I think could have enabled us to move faster and been a, more effective all over the world. So, so what was it like when you arrived um, into the government that spring? What, um, if you set the scene for us. Yeah. I think the administration was very poised to do more on the global front. I think mm -hmm. it was feeling increasingly confident, not they weren't declaring victory, but increasingly confident that uh, the pandemic in the United States was coming under control. Okay. Remember, we had vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a secretary of state who was keenly interested in two things. The first mm -hmm. being what can and should we be doing to help uh, bring this pandemic to an end outside our borders. Mm -hmm. And the second is, boy, how do we need to think about this in the long term? Because right. these are threats. Secretary Blinken served in the same administrations I did. He had seen HIV and AIDS. He'd seen Ebola. It's very evident we're going to get more threats like these. And so he had a keen interest in the department's role in the longer-term global health security. Uh, and how do we prepare for this in the future? So I walked into a very open, eager, and enthusiastic environment. Okay. Yeah, which okay. is very helpful. And and in terms of organizing the bureaucracy, so you got this leadership change that is that everybody's very supportive. And how did you start getting the mechanisms of state to to start moving towards well, I think activities the big, to end the pandemic? Um, there are parts of the State Department that work on these issues. They weren't all concentrated in one place. Mm. So within state, it was pulling those various pieces together. Mm -hmm. uh, the office was organized as part of the secretary's office, which mm -hmm. helps, yep. right? Okay. If you're yep. part of the seventh floor, yep. that's always a, uh, a positive thing. But still, you've got to work with a system and an institution that is built in a particular way. And mm. it meant a lot of close collaboration with Health and Human Services, with USAID, with National mm -hmm. Security Council. So yeah. all of those things were, were necessary. That wasn't that challenging mm -hmm. to put together. I think the challenge was uh, we wanted to focus on vaccines because there's a huge demand for vaccines. And most low- and low-middle-income countries had, quite frankly, been squeezed out of the market. Right. And so there was a real urgency to getting that moving. And I had... Extraordinary cooperation from the White House team. Jeff Science, who's now the chief of staff, was then leading the COVID effort. Mm -hmm. And we built a machine to provide vaccines to other countries, basically. <laughs> you know, like you do. Just like you do. <laughs> and it's harder than you think. You know, you don't just put those vaccines on a plane and say, oh, they're arriving at 930. Right, because it's, again, logistics. and It's logistics. It's legal. It's regulatory on both ends. Mm -hmm. They've got to be transported in a certain way. It's... It's challenging, but we moved a lot of vaccines. Well, as you departed the Biden administration um, in that role, what were your your takeaways or impressions on um, where we need to invest or improve to be, to be better prepared for the next pandemic? Oh, there are so many ways. Okay. <laughs> and I think the first is, and look, this is a problem I, I referred to it at the beginning of our conversation. At the height of a crisis... The world tends to be pretty good at responding. Yeah. Most of it. Much yeah. of it. 
as the crisis recedes, mm. people are like, oh, yeah, we don't really need to worry about that. Now we have to worry about these other 17 crises that are unfolding. Okay. And so the biggest gap we have right now is, is kind of the attention span, mm. is we learned a lot from the COVID pandemic, which, by the way, hasn't been declared over yet. Right. Um, so we know much of what's needed in terms of surveillance in terms of ensuring the kind of speed of developing countermeasures, as was the case in COVID, all these kinds of things. Um, what we don't quite have yet is the global political leadership to make sure all of that happens mm. and the commitment to coordination, which is necessary. Because that was another problem, is there was not the global coordination that there was in Ebola and in other cases. Mm -hmm. So uh, I came out concerned that there are a lot of gaps. Mm -hmm. Encouraged that we know what the gaps are. Yeah, knowing is the first. Uh, and I think very encouraged by the Secretary of State's point of view, which mm -hmm. is very focused on this and building more capacity within state. But again, there's lots of other crises, and it's very easy for the world to move on. Well, actually, turning to you know these multiple simultaneous crises mm -hmm. in your current capacity, how how are you in leading the one campaign? How are you thinking about? how we should be managing or preparing for multiple simultaneous crises. Yeah. It's, um, and they get called the poly crisis. Yeah, said that's a new... I don't like any of these words. It kind of skirts over the fact that, okay, you've got a pandemic, mm -hmm. then a food crisis, climate change, mm -hmm. an energy crisis, and inflation. Other than that, everything's fine. <laughs> Look, the, the common denominators are what we try to look at. And, and yeah. what are the common denominators for a majority of the world's countries? They don't have the resilience needed to withstand all of these external shocks. Right. Right? right. In the United States, we passed, what, three supplementals worth trillions of dollars. Yeah. Well, you can't do that in a whole lot of countries. You don't have that to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, you don't have a FEMA that can go in and provide housing for everybody for an extended period of time. So how do we invest in that? Resilience. Mm -hmm. Our focus has been on the international financial institutions, and particularly the World Bank and the other multilateral mm -hmm. development banks. They're not moving enough capital to make a dent in this resilience gap. Mm -hmm. And there are proposals out there that have come from the G20 on how you can increase those numbers. We're pushing pretty hard for that to happen because we need more capital. Uh, and we need to invest it in that thing called resilience because we're going to see nothing but external shock after external shock after external shock. You may have mm -hmm. noticed they're kind of accelerating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's more of that on yeah. the horizon. Yeah. So I think we've really got to do that. And the, the conundrum there is, and this is true for any of us in our personal lives or anything else, what's right in front of your face is easier to focus on than something that even though you know better, if you were doing that now, you'd be in a better position in six months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, and it gets back to the, to the immediacy versus preparedness and, you know, the yeah. different preparedness is not sufficiently out there yeah. in the discourse, in the discussions, in debates about national security. It's, mm -hmm. it's, out there, it's still out there mostly among people who come from the world of evil viruses. Mm -hmm. And it's not out there sufficiently. It needs to literally infect the entire discourse. <laughs> um, Maybe well, we need a preparedness virus. Preparedness virus. Oh, ooh. Mm. Mm. <laughs> 
So from your current vantage point, what humanitarian aid or development issue are you seeing on the horizon that, that is keeping you up at night? There's some, that, that, you know, because the, the, the discourse right now is so focused on Ukraine. Um, are there any other hotspots yeah. that you're, you're, well, you're worrying about? There's that? no shortage of hotspots. I mm-hmm. think what I worry about, I, I worry about where the food crisis is going. Okay. I yeah. think that's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. But I think the other crisis that is looming in this is a real crisis of inequity. Hmm. We've got, and and I think it's going to, it's manifesting in a number of ways. The whole world's been through a pandemic. Some countries were able to get through it. Other countries, you know, 60% of low-income countries are looking at a debt crisis. Yeah. And it's the pandemic and these other shocks. Yeah. Um, And I think... This will surprise you with everything that's going on in the world. The world is not quite hanging together and joining forces in the way it might. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Newsflash. <laughs> Newsflash, there's some division out there. And I get that. And I understand why there yeah. is the division and the tension. But the consequence when we're dealing with a number of global shocks is that I think we're leaving on the table our collective power to reduce the impact and prepare for the future shocks. Yeah. And that's a big trade-off. And I'm not, you know, I'm not at all suggesting that uh, support for the people of Ukraine is not important. It's vitally important for obvious reasons. But I think we're going to have to be able to do both and find some ways that we can get more global cooperation on some of these things. Or we're going to start to see divisions that I think will come back to haunt us. Yeah. Well, turning to gender. Um, one of the things, you know, it's for smart rooms for power. Um, w- one of the things at least I've observed is that when it comes to national security and foreign policy making, that um, w- w- gender tends to be an afterthought if not a blind spot. Um, given the, the leading role that you've played in multiple administrations and, and you know, in and out of government, I'm curious, do, do you agree? Um, and, and, and if so, ought we be thinking about gender and its implications more robustly in our national security and foreign policies? Or... Do we, yeah. other, okay. <laughs> and how would we go about doing so? Um, I don't want to reduce the importance of doing so because as a matter of principle, it is right. Mm -hmm. But I want to make the point that it's also smart. Mm. And the way to convince people, I think, that it's also smart is to drown them in data. Mm. And I don't think we have, I think we've got a lot of very powerful data that tells stories ranging from how much more productive an economy can be if girls are educated and have equal access to finance and other opportunities or all sorts of things. But I don't know that we have as much data as we need disaggregated Mm -hmm. to show the real impacts and opportunity costs Mm -hmm. of having gender be a kind of nice to do. And oh, by the way, we really care about gender. 
Right. As opposed right. to thinking about it more deeply and structurally and systematically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. I don't know that it's an afterthought. It's a, you know, I think we're at a point where a lot of people know you're supposed to talk about it and mm-hmm. you should have a gender piece to this or that. But I don't think it's, it's not woven in. It's right. not integrated. It's, it's still not the bloodstream on a yet. separate track. Yeah. Right. It's not in the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe adding a bit of data to, qualitative data to the case, I mean, in, in the different positions that you've held, do you think that being a woman has influenced your approach to the decisions that you've taken or your approach to, to the issues with which you've grappled? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not the most conventional person that's ever served in government, kind of. You know, I, there were people the first time I served, they were like, oh, my God, they're letting her in. Uh, and that helps, actually, because yeah. you just need to sometimes say things. Um, so I think that helps. But I think, I think the difference I see is and, and in a world that's changing, I will mm-hmm. say, the national security field, even in the, the time that I've had the privilege to serve, you look at President Obama's national security team, and it was a majority of women, mm-hmm. uh, even at the highest levels, uh, in his second term. But I think a lot of it is about process, hmm. right? And process, I don't mean like bureaucratic process. Sure. I mean... How do you get from analyzing a problem to solving it? What is the process of analyzing it? And I don't want to suggest that we as women analyze it perfectly, and those men really have huge challenges. I think the field has grown up in a very male, hard power universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... What I'm seeing is more and more women are involved in the field is not any diminution of understanding of hard power, Hmm. but is an increase in the understanding that it's not quite as linear as that. Right. So that's number one. And then it's this, the process of how decisions are made, how debates take place, who's at the table, who speaks at the table. Um, I want to be very careful of sweeping generalizations. In my Mm -hmm. experience, I think women tend to be a bit better than men mm-hmm. at encouraging that broader, what do you think, what do you think, making sure people are heard, bringing up points that may be seen as extraneous, but mm-hmm. actually are not extraneous. People mm-hmm. just think they're extraneous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's the holism. It's the holism, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I heard that you and a former NSC colleague were had a dream about writing the Girls' Guide to National Security. Yeah, this was a it was a relief valve. Yeah, right. Like yeah. You'd be, we'd be in a meeting, and <clears throat> you couldn't take your phones into me, so you couldn't text this. But like, you'd write a note, just say Girls' Guide, like get that in the Girls' Guide. <laughs> and a lot of it was just about odd things that would happen, and I. You know, let me put it this way. I I was in a conversation recently with some members of Congress about the future of the U.S. and the world and crises and train wrecks and all of that. And I was talking about, like, soft power. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, soft power isn't just girls trying to be nice. (laughs) Right? Right. But that's... 
you look at a table and who's talking about the soft power tools, it tends to be more women than men. Mm. Um, how do you translate that? Right. How do you... I, I think one chapter we had in in the outline of the book, we really should do this book. because You I should, you should definitely really, do this book. We could be really, really cheeky, is um, act like you're supposed to be in the room. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, don't start your sentence with, sorry, could I just make a point? Like, no, 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 you don't need to apologize. Yeah. Just, just like, go. Be quiet, I'd like to make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so it's those kinds of kinds of things. And I will say, uh, the majority of the men that I have worked with when I've been in government have enough awareness that you can also use humor to get at some of this, Mm -hmm. which is the other thing that we felt very strongly about. Mm -hmm. I mean, anger's okay for a while, but it It doesn't doesn't really get you anywhere. Yeah, it just makes people more cranky and it's repeat. Yeah. Humor breaks the ice. Yeah. Well, Gail, thank you so much for joining us today on Smart Women's Fire Power. And have a wonderful afternoon. Subscribe to the Smart Women's Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women's Smart Power Speaker Series is supported by City.